Hi, Chris Valentin here. Welcome to my podcast, where I hope to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and experience God's goodness in every area of your life. I hope you enjoy this message today. And if you're looking for more resources, check out chrisvalentin.com. Well, why don't you grab a hand? We're going to pray this morning. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the speaker. Listen, this is for you. Trust me. You want me to pray this prayer. We pray you bless the speaker. You'd bless the hearers. You bless everybody in the room. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would just open up revelation to us, that you would inspire us, that you would equip us, that you would deploy us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I want to talk to you about uh, really the subject that we, we've gathered for today. I want to talk to you about uh, becoming cultural architects. And I've shared this message uh, two or three times, added to it as, you know, as you, we learn more. But uh, if you'll turn to Isaiah 61, I wanted to show you, you may already uh, have uh, know this or have heard this message. I just believe this is probably the, one of the most important messages that we are carrying as a, as a family right now. Um, Isaiah 61, I'm sure you'll recognize these verses right away. This is um, what uh, the uh, Jewish rabbis call the, the, uh, the Messiah's mandate, and it's also our mandate. And it begins with, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me, to preach the good news to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to speak release to captives, and freedom to prisoners, the favorable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to grant all those who mourn in Zion and give them a garland instead of ashes, a mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting. How many of those actually a spirit of fainting? There is a spirit of fatigue. That they might be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And so there's three verses about the captives, the, the fatigued, the brokenhearted. That word brokenhearted actually in the Hebrew means shattered minds. That um, God is healing the shattered minds. He's setting the captive free. He's restoring all these different groups of people. But verse 4 is, is actually a verse that, I, that I've had uh, in my uh, vocabulary for years. And it says this, Then they shall rebuild the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations and repair ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. And the point that I'm making is that God wants us to be healed. He wants us to be whole and happy and abundant life. We know this. But once we get whole and healthy and healed, we are commissioned to rebuild cities. I, I think this is a, like a, a piece that every single person, like I don't know how I can rebuild a city. You are commissioned to rebuild cities as soon as you are whole, as soon as you are restored. Once you get personally restored, you have a corporate ministry of restoring your city. And I, I, I wanna just prophesy to you that you were born to be a cultural architect. That there is actually a war over who gets to shape culture and influence history. That you have been anointed, you have been called, every single person, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or whether you're the President of the United States, you've been called, I didn't mean to make that the low place or anything like that, <laughs> so happy that I got a wonderful mom, but we're all called to shape history. And um, so I want to just uh, share a little bit about that. I, I, I was de very demonized many years ago. Some people think I still am. <laughs> we won't talk about that right now. Um, and the Lord uh, set me free after three and a half years. 
and I was, I was uh, in a bathtub. I've shared this experience many times. I was in a bathtub uh, about a year and a half after my nervous breakdown. And how many of you know that once the Lord drives out the demonic spirit in your life, there's still some rebuilding that needs to be done? If you have a robber that breaks in your house and he does a bunch of damage to your house and they catch the robber, you still have to restore the house. And so I was in this process of, of being restored and the Lord was restoring my identity and my confidence was, of course, at an all-time low. And um, just being restored and I was just laying in the bathtub praying, uh, which was kind of my custom and for years. And the Lord came in the bathtub, in the bathtub, <laughs> trying to... Yeah, and he was uh, walking on the water. <laughs> and I was so afraid to walk with him. <laughs> Sorry, he came in the bathroom. I saw him with my eyes. I've actually only had two of these encounters my entire life. This was many years ago, probably around 38 years ago. And he began to talk to me about my future. And I, I didn't tell anyone, even my wife, for more than a year. But he said to me, you're going to be... You're going to be a prophet to kings and to governors and prime ministers and presidents, and you're going to shape the course of history, and you're going to cause the kingdoms of this world to be the kingdom of our God. And, um, and then he turned to leave in the vision. He turned to leave the room, and he turned back, and he walked over to me and pointed right in my eyes. I could see the world in his eyes, and he said this to me. He said, history will tell us if you believe me. That actually shaped much of my theology because I think Bill shared on it last night that God's pro prophecies are your potential. <laughs> but you have to partner, I think, I think you said something like this, but you have to partner with your potential. God said to me, this is, my, basically, he's like, this is my prophetic declaration over your life. This is my destiny for you. But in order for you, in order for you to see this happen in your life, you must walk it out. You must cross the chicken line. <laughs> Hello, how many know your destiny lies on the other side of your fear? I, I believe that the dogs of doom stand at the doors of destiny. Oftentimes, most Christians don't come in their destiny because when the dogs start barking, they back up instead of kick them in the teeth and keep going. By the way, fear, the, the devil never protects something that isn't, worth, it isn't a treasure. Good word, Chris, all right. And the Lord began to talk to me about shaping history. Nothing happened in my life for many years. I didn't get another prophetic word about speaking to kings. And as a matter of fact, you know, when, something, when you first get a prophetic word, are you like this? You're like, oh, the president's going to call me. <laughs> President Reagan's going to call me. He's like, I heard you had an encounter in the bathtub. <laughs> and the Lord came walking on the water. Nothing happened for years. And then I, I came to Bethel. And uh, I think I was here two years, and a, a really old lady came. She was about 50. <laughs> that was for the millennials, you know. <laughs> Anybody over 30 is like ancient, you know. Irrelevant. And uh, she came, she met me right in the back there, and she was really nervous. She said, I had this dream about you, prophetic vision. I don't remember if it was a dream or a vision. She, and I said, okay. She said, I'm really nervous to tell you. And I'm like, just, just tell me. And she said, I saw you in the White House. I saw you ministering to the president. And what she didn't know is that activated something that was 22, 23 years, you know, dead in me. And then that year, I think I counted around 15 or 16 times 
that word was some, in some way repeated. I saw you in the White House. I saw you ministering to presidents. And suddenly, it's, it's, it's something opened up and something that had been, if you will, it was germinating, right? You plant a seed and it germinates before there's actually fruit. And it began, and people began to uh, tell me, you're, you're going to speak to presidents. You're going to speak to... And, and slowly, you know, uh, little by little, we never... I never called, uh, you know, any politician and said, I, I have a word for you. And I just waited for the Lord to open the door. And little by little, sometimes they would come here and we'd minister to them. They're like, hey, I have a friend. Could you minister to him too? And it turned out to be another politician. And little by little, the doors begin to open and, and God's uh, words fulfilled in our lives. Um, but I, I want to also say that there is a war over who will shape the mindsets of the masses and therefore form culture. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. And what I'm getting at is that we don't live in a vacuum. There's actually resistance to shaping culture. And that resistance isn't just humanity. It's not like your neighbor just doesn't want to hear the message or you know, your friend down the street doesn't want to hear about Jesus. Uh, those things are obviously true. There's human will involved. But I'd like to propose that there's actually a war in the demonic realm over who actually gets to shape history. Isaiah, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 says, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle, say our struggle, is not against flesh and blood. I think it's really important we stop there and remember our struggle is not against the Democrats, it's not against the Republicans, it's not against the independents. Our struggle is not against humans. Uh, This is something I've, a message I've been carrying into the political world the last 14 years. I meet with Democrats and Republicans and and kind of a spiritual guide, and I remind them, like, you know what? That political spirit makes you feel like the enemy is a human. And I like to propose that the devil hates Democrats as much as he hates Republicans, hates Republicans as much as he hates Democrats. He just hates people. And so it says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers. Everybody say rulers. That word rulers is very interesting. It says rulers against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the, everybody say heavenly places. Did you notice that there are spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places? And I'd like to propose that there is no spiritual forces of wickedness in God's heaven. And so I want to introduce you to, you probably, many of you have already been introduced to these ideas, but the Bible teaches that there's actually three heavens. The first heavens uh, is related in Genesis chapter 1, and God created the heavens and the earth. How many understand you live in the first heaven? It's the visible kingdom. It's the thing that you can see. We can all see, you know, feel it, smell it, touch it. You live in the first heaven. And then Ephesians 6 says that there are principalities and powers. They're in heavenly places. How many know there's no principality and power in God's kingdom, in God's heaven? But this is what we call the second heaven. That there are principalities and powers that they're in the second heaven. And, that, and that, 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 that phrase, second heaven, dictates that this second heaven has influence, if you will, or power over the first heaven. But then it's, Paul said, I knew a man who was taken to the third heaven. How many know that when you received Jesus Christ, you were, you were seated already past tense in, the, in heavenly places with Christ? You were not seated in the second heaven. You were seated in the third heaven. And think about it as a metaphor now. 
Christ, it says that Christ, when he was raised from the dead, he was seated in the third heaven, he was seated in heavenly places, and he says, and they put all authority, every name that's ever been named, Ephesians chapter one, under his feet. How many know he's the head, you're the body? Right? The smallest toe is still over the second heaven. You have authority over the second heaven. How many know the second heaven only has authority over the first heaven if you don't sit in your rightful seat? There's this, uh, in Ephesians uh, uh, 6, which we just read, for our struggles not against flesh and blood, but against rulers. I just want to take this one, rulers. I don't think Paul was saying that he was struggling with the demon. I, I want to be clear that the demonic realm, in the demonic realm, there are levels of evil. Jesus said, if you cast out a demon, seven spirits more evil than the first will return. Yeah. I propose that there are levels of demonic authority in the second heaven realm. When Paul said that my, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, I believe he was talking about that he was, he was wrestling against principalities, not against common demons. In other words, world changers wrestle, struggle against world forces of darkness. This first uh, demonic uh, prince is very interesting. The word rulers, uh, some of your Bibles uh, would probably say principalities in, in the first one. God has, uh, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the first one, probably in your, if it's New International, it's say principalities probably. Um, that word, actually rulers, principality, it's actually the Greek word origin. Origin. Follow me for a minute. Origin. Let me show you where this word is used again. When Paul spoke to the Philippians in chapter 4 of Philippians, verse 15, he said, You yourselves know, Philippians, that at my first preaching, the two words, first preaching, are actually the one word, origin. Okay, like, Valentin, where are you going? Demons are named after the influence they have on humanity. For instance, when Jesus cast out a deaf and dumb spirit, you remember it says then Jesus cast out the deaf and dumb spirit and the boy could hear and speak. Because the demon, the name of the demon, the demon was named by the influence it had on a person. Are you with me? So we, you know, we name people John, Bill, Chris, whatever. We're just saying we just like the name. But in the demonic realm, demons are named after the influence they carry. Are you following me? So this, this demon is named Origin. What does that mean? And Paul said that he spoke to the Philippians the first preaching of the gospel, or if you will, he was speaking the origins, the beginnings, the foundations. Are you with me? So what does the spirit Origin do? He, this spirit, this demonic spirit, is assigned to, to convince the world of a different origin than God's creation. For instance, this spirit says, were you really created in the image of God? Maybe you were an evolutionized ape. And this spirit takes something completely irrational and makes it feel rational because it's not coming from the rational mind, it's coming from a demonic spirit. Oh yeah, you know, that just makes perfect sense. Can you imagine if I said to you, nobody made this building? Oh, it sounds crazy, but it took billions of years. Isn't it strange we add the word billion to something? It makes total sense. 
oh yeah. Like two, two Volkswagens, they just collided back and forth and a Corvette drove out. Oh, it sounds ridiculous, but it happened over billions of years. Oh, I forgot that. The Big Bang Theory, you know, it's like matter. I don't know if you know much about this Big Bang Theory, but you know, this matter had this big collision and boom. But my question is, where did you get the matter? <laughs> See, it matters. <laughs> See, you have to take God's matter to even get to evolution. <laughs> because Hebrews says that God made from the invisible what is now visible. God made from the eternal what is now finite so you even have where do you get the matter so that you can have a collision you have to steal it from God that you don't believe in it sounds crazy but it happened over billions of years how about this one is that a baby or a fetus see origin changes the idea of the original. Are you, boy, you know, we used to ask, is that a boy or a girl you're pregnant with? Now we have to ask, is it human? That one may not be human. The Constitution may not protect that one. You may just be pregnant with a fetus. How about this one? Are you really a boy? Maybe you're a girl. Or you may have a penis but still be a girl. Sounds perfectly logical. It's against your biology, against your genealogy, against your psychology. But you know what? If you feel it, you are it. Makes perfect sense. Happened over billions of years. <laughs> See, all these things, they make no sense unless you're under the spirit that is changing the origins, the first preachings, the way you see life. Do you understand? When Paul's talking about, I came to you to speak the origins, he was talking about, I'm sharing with you, this is the beginnings. This is how you view the entire world. God is good all the time, for instance. How you know? God is good all the time. When something goes wrong, God is still good all the time. What am I doing? I'm speaking the origins, the beginnings, the original. This is, listen, no matter what you go through, God is good all the time. I'm laying the foundations in which you view all of life. Second Corinthians 10.3 says, for though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh, and for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Let's stop for a minute and just repeat this one thing. Our battle is not people. As soon as you make a person the enemy, you have played in to the real enemy. Because the devil doesn't matter why you hate someone as long as you hate them. And then he goes on to say there are three things that create evil fortresses. Thoughts, speculations, and lofty things. What's a lofty thing? Something that's bigger than God. Well, I don't believe there is anything bigger than God. You ever worry? How many have ever worried in here? 
Bill has. <laughs> Everybody is worried. What did you just do when you worried? You made something bigger than God. You just said, God's ability to provide for my rent next Friday is not as powerful as my inability, as his inability, or the enemy's inability, or the enemy's ability, or my ability to actually get my rent money. Every time I worry, I have a lofty thing. I just took something and made it bigger than God. Everyone in this room has done it many times. We just don't think of it like that. What's the speculation? It's a what if. You ever had your wife, husband, kids come home late? They're an hour late, and you start thinking about where they're at? Have you ever thought, well, I bet you the principal took my son aside and gave him the Nobel Peace Prize. No, we're always like, maybe he was abducted by aliens. (laughs) You ever been afraid and your stories are just completely irrational? Are you guys all right? Like, I'm afraid I am. (laughs) Have you ever noticed that almost all of our speculations are negative? Your wife is uh, late, two hours late from work, and you're like, Maybe she got in a car accident. Maybe somebody killed her. Maybe something terrible happened. You never think, well, maybe the boss took her aside and promoted her to CEO. (laughs) We'll never have thoughts like that. You know why? Because we are not thinking in a vacuum. There is a spirit that is trying to convince us that God is not in control of our lives, that God is not taking care of us, that God, how many know that foreboding spirit that says something's always about to go wrong is actually not something that originates in my mind, it originates in the spirit realm in which we're fighting. But I want to say this, that we were born for battle. Here we go. Romans 8, 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. How many of you know you can't conquer what you don't confront? And if you're more than a conqueror, that means you're at least a conqueror. That means you were born for battle. I'm saying you were inherently born for battle. Have you ever seen an orange tree? Are you okay? You seen an orange tree? You ever seen orange trees strain over oranges? Like, try to make an orange. And you just walk by the orange tree and you're like, oh, that poor orange tree is just trying to make an orange. No, no, they're organically designed to create oranges. They don't strain to make oranges. Now, if they get jealous of the apple tree, or they have a thought like, I'm really an apple tree. <laughs> anyway, you know, <laughs> it's just second Timothy. <laughs> I don't know why people don't like me. <laughs> second Timothy chapter two, verse three. Listen to this, Paul to Timothy. Suffer hardship with me as a soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. How many know you're a son or a daughter, but you're in the army of God? I'm in the army of God. And the safest place to be is wherever God sends you. I was thinking about uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's a story of King David, and you'll remember this story. It says, it begins, it opens with this statement. In the spring, when kings go out to war, David sent Joab. Do you know what the rest of that story is? David's hanging out on the top of his castle, looking down over 
Bathsheba taking a bath. She was Bathsheba. Today she'd be Shower Sheba. <laughs> She's taking a bath, and it ends up in an adulterous relationship, a child born out of wedlock, and the death of Uriah. You know what Uriah's name means? His name means God is my fire. And I'd like to suggest that when David killed Uriah, David's kingdom, the fire of David's heart and life was going out. And my point is, why was David under siege? Because he was supposed to be out to war. In the spring, when kings go out to war, he sent somebody else. The safest place to be is where God sends you. Like, I want to stay in a comfort zone. How many know, in times of peace, awesome. But when God sends you to war, the comforter goes with you. And I'd suggest that the Prince of Peace will crush Satan under your feet. And therefore, sometimes, peace only happens through warfare. I'm saying this because I believe that the that 21st century church is addicted to comfort. We are addicted to comfort. You probably, I don't know if you're aware of this, if you're from California, you know, and, and many states now and many countries, transgenderism is becoming normalized. A transgenderism simply means that, you're, uh, that a boy thinks he's a girl or a girl thinks she's a boy. And now in, in California, um, as of 2016, we, we passed legislation that created curriculum so that we've taken away all the pronouns he and she in our curriculum to 2019. Just three months ago, the curriculum was released for the first time. We get to see what the curriculum is. It's been released over our, our uh, public school system. And by the way, they just passed legislation so our kids cannot opt out of public school sex education. And they're teaching our five-year-olds that you're, you might have uh, two daddies or two mommies and that your sex is not defined by your genetics. So they're teaching little five-year-olds, you might have a penis, but still be a girl. This is, you know why this happened? It happened because Christians didn't vote. Let me tell you what the statistics are. 27% of all Americans say, in America, all people in America say that they, that they are Christians, 27%. Out of those, 48% of them are registered to vote. Out of those, 17% vote in a presidential race and only 12% in every other race. Now you think about it, the gay activists, 3% of people in America identify as being gay, 3%. You know why the gay agenda is dictating how we live? Because they actually vote. They actually care. And I have a feeling, oh, I, I'll tell you this one last part that probably should wake you up. You, you may not know this, but if you're, in, if you're a citizen of California, you don't actually own your children. The government does. You are stewards of your children. Your children can have a sex change without your permission. And by the way, if you and they have to have 12 months of therapy. If they go through that therapy successfully, they can have their penis removed, their breasts removed, and they can start, um, they can start uh, therapy to become a man, become a woman. And if you try to stop it, CPS is ordered to take them from your home. 
children. And by the way, they're trying to pass a bill. It was being discussed two days ago when I was in, uh, in, in, um, at the Capitol that any book, any, any, any teaching, anything that does anything except for affirm transgenderism is illegal in California. You know how that all passed? Because we didn't vote. Do you know that most of the transgender bills passed by less than 5,000 votes in, America, in California? 5,000 votes. There's 11,000 people in Bethel. I'm trying. I'm simply saying that the battle's not bigger than us. We just don't go to the battle. We're addicted to the palace. I love the palace, but how many of there's times of peace and there are times of war? And the worst place to be in a time of war is sitting in the palace, sipping suds, when we should be out in the battlefield. Listen, I'm not against anybody. I just want to be clear. Like, I, you know, I, I, think it's, I think God gives people permission to sin. So I think that Christians are notorious for cutting down the second tree and calling it sanctification, and God calls it control. But there's a big difference between allowing people freedom and normalizing sin in the life of our children. There's a big difference. A big difference, like, if you want to be gay, my, in my mind, like, I wouldn't want to be in a country that arrests you for that. But at the same time, if you want to normalize sin, how I many you know you just sanctioned? We have, we have public sanctioned philosophies and religion now. We don't have freedom of religion anymore. We have government sanctioned philosophies that if you're opposed to them, you could be arrested for that. Your kids could be taken from you. And you know who the government is? Right here. We're a government by the people, except for the people who decided to govern are the ones who feel passionate. That reminds me of the early 70s when they took the Bible and prayer out of school. And people rose up after the law was already passed. But then they did a survey and found out that Christians didn't actually pray at home. <laughs> Much easier to protest than actually do it. You know how sexual teaching got in the school system? Parents didn't teach their kids at home. Same thing happens on, in my mind, every Sunday, people stand up against homosexuality, but they don't actually teach healthy sexuality in church. So we just live in reaction to what someone else is doing instead of actually forming culture through first preaching. We're not teaching the origins, we're just reacting to the other ones. And I'm like, can we just get out of following and start actually leading? There's a very interesting passage in Matthew 25. Do you ever have passages in the Bible that they're kind of like speed bumps? Like you read them and you're like, they totally don't make sense to you. You're like, I don't want to think about that. Have you ever... Maybe, okay, first of all, let me back up. How many of you read the Bible? Okay, good. <laughs> Haven't we all, you're reading a passage, you're like, that's amazing, that's amazing, that is, oh, what was that? 
she ran over a rock of a fence, <laughs> a thorn of treachery, a rock of defense. I don't know what that was. I just, just like, don't, don't go back and look. Don't go back and look. Because I'm going to look at it, and it's going to really discourage me because I have no idea what it means. Uh, and this passage in Matthew 25 is very much like that to me. Verse 31 starts, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. I like that. That's not a problem. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. And he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. And it goes on to eternal punishment for the ones on the left. I've read that many times. And I'm like, I don't even think about it. I'm like, huh. Like he's coming in his glorious throne, and then I just skip down to, we win. <laughs> because, I, you know, we, we should all understand in here that there's going to be a day of judgment. That makes total sense to me. That's never been a, you know, a speed bump. I get it. I'm going to answer to God for how I lived. And hopefully, uh, in, in our lives, according to the scripture, the things that we've done that are, that, and sin are under the blood, and it's called a great and terrible day of the Lord, depending on who you live for. That makes total sense to me. Here's the part that doesn't make sense to me, has never made sense to me when I read this passage. So not only am I gonna have a personal judgment, but I'm gonna be judged with a whole bunch of other people. <laughs> like, what if I'm a sheep in a goat nation? Like, like, is it like, how do I know what nation I get judged in? Is like the one right before I die? I'm like, I want to make sure like I get in the right nation. Because, you know, I don't know what your nation is, but I don't know if my sheep, my, my nation's a sheep nation or a goat nation, but maybe I just want to go to Israel because I, I think God said something about they're going to be sheep. So I was like, before I die, if I get sick, I'm like, fly me to Israel. Like, it doesn't seem to make a lot, I'm like, I can't make sense out of how God would judge a people, like a whole group of people, by the land they're on. And then one day, this real recently, uh, just a few months ago, I was reading that, and, and, and I was doing what I always do, I'm like, okay, okay I can't just skip chapter 25, because it's in my reading for the day, and I'm reading it, and I, I felt like the Lord said, slow down and ask me questions. And I started realizing that you can't be, you can't be corporate, there can't be corporate judgments without collective responsibility. And God wouldn't hold me accountable for something he didn't equip me to influence. And therefore, we are responsible for the mindsets of nations because we're called to influence the way they think. And my point is this, is that if I'm a sheep in a goat nation, God put me there not so I'd be judged with the goats, but so that I'd convert the goats to sheep. I'm saying God says you have collective responsibility. We do think as a people group. Like it is true that like sheep we go astray. You, you know, like sheep we go astray. We innocently look at each other's butt <laughs> and hope there's a shepherd up front. Well, Mildred, 99 sheep can't all be wrong. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> we don't even know if there's a shepherd up front. We just blindly follow people and God says that we actually think collectively. Think about this in the Old Testament. How many of you read the book of Kings? First and second Kings. And it says, and there's a wicked king. And it says, and all of Israel, all of Israel went after Baal. Right? It doesn't say they pretended to. It says they did. 
And then suddenly, like four kings later, they finally get it, righteous king. And it says, and all of Israel serve the Lord. It doesn't say they faked it. It says they serve the Lord. Like, like in that day, one guy's relationship with God or one guy's relationship with a demon infected the way everyone thought they had collective reasoning. We call it a corporate mindset. My point is, if we're gonna be judged collectively, that means we have authority collectively. That means that if I'm righteous in a, in a bunch of wicked people, that I have the power, like leaven, to make every evil thing rise to God. Like if you put one little mustard seed in the garden of God, how many know that mustard seed's small, but it takes over the garden? I'm simply saying, you are more than a conqueror. You are not alone. Think of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You got four guys, they're POWs. They've been taken captive. Nebuchadnezzar has destroyed their country, tore down the temple, and taken a whole bunch of people captive. And the, but he makes one strategic mistake, Nebs does. He brings Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into leadership. And you know the story. Over 70 years, those four young men who become old men in that kingdom, they shift the course of Babylon. Babylon, that's in Revelation, is still the symbol of evil. They shift Babylon towards the kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar finds God, <laughs> right? His son refuses to serve God and dies right there. And Darius, the Persian king, ends up being influenced by Daniel. How many of you know Daniel serves in a Babylonian kingdom and then a Persian kingdom? Darius comes in, the last king that Daniel served. He serves, Dar I'm sorry, Daniel serves Darius till the 70th year of release. I'm sorry, Cyrus. Cyrus hears the prophecies of Jeremiah that Daniel goes, look, your name's in the book, dude. You're supposed to let us go and it's the 70th year. Cyrus doesn't just let the people go back. He did what Jeremiah never prophesied. He funded the entire rebuilding of the temple, which was never prophesied. And you know what else happened? Cyrus wrote the Bill of Rights that is now in the nations, United Nations, that is used as the first preaching of the United Nations. It is the, it is the charter for all the United Nations. It was written by Cyrus, who was mentored by Daniel, who was a POW in a foreign land. What's your problem? Well, I live in California. I mean, the liberals are taking over. But you're there. Daniel was not filled with the Spirit. Daniel was not born again. Daniel did not have the mind of Christ. And yes, he had advantages, but the least in the kingdom is greater than everyone that lived before John the Baptist. You only think you're powerless because you're listening to the wrong spirit. You are seated in heavenly places how many of you know, you are seated in heavenly places in this three-level chess that God is playing. 
you see this level, and you're like, things are bad, but you don't realize God's playing up here. God's playing on the top level. I was with some Congress people recently who were, um, they happened to be uh, of the party that's not in power. And they were talking about how powerless they feel at dinner. And about 30 minutes into that conversation, someone, one, of the, one of them said, why don't we let Chris tell us what he thinks? <laughs> My passivity is famous. So I pointed to each one of them, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, and you're wrong. And the gal that was sitting next to me, I had talked to her for about 20 minutes. She said, tell them about that three thing. <laughs> tell them about that three thing. I said, oh, that three thing. I told them about the three heavens. And I said, you're seated in heavenly places with Christ. And the first guy goes, where is that in the Bible? He never, he's read the Bible every day of his life and never saw it. I read it in three places to him. He said, I read my Bible and never saw that myself. I said, not only are you seated in heavenly places, but you're a Romans 13 leader. You know what that means? That you've been anointed by God to lead people, and you're the only humans who God says you better fear. You know you're not supposed to fear any human? Proverbs says that fearing humans is a snare. In fact, and 1 John says that perfect love casts out fear. But you know the only humans we're supposed to fear, that we are anointed fear, are civil government leaders? It says, give fear, render fear to whom fears do. Read it for yourself, Romans 13. That literally God says, they are so anointed, you should be afraid of them. I said, that's you guys. You're the only ones who don't know that you've been called by God to lead. You're not disempowered by the Democrats. The Democrats aren't your problem. The spirit of the power of the air is your problem, but you sit above him. You are, he's under your feet, and they said, tell us more about that. So we spent three hours talking about the fact you are seated. You believe in the rapture? I'm, probably there is one, but I can say there's already been one because I went, from when I received Jesus, I already got called up. I'm already seated in heavenly places. I have authority over, over every principality and power. There is a cultural, there is a war over who gets to shape culture, but only one people group has been anointed to do it. The others are trying to steal our authority. God bless you, stand please. Jesus said, I'll remind you in Matthew 28, all authority, everybody say all, all. has been given to me in heaven, and on earth. Therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them everything I taught you. What you learn is relevant to government leaders. Lord, we bless your people, and we remind them that they've been called to not just make disciples of people, but to make disciples of all nations. They've been commissioned, they have been equipped, they have been protected, they have shields all around them. They were born for conflict, and we bless them that we would be the cultural architects of this 21st century. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. 
Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you want to find out more, read my blog or listen to the previous podcast episodes. Go to chrisvelleton.com. Have an awesome day.